You're listening to TIP. Vanguard has the number one vote in 70% of the companies in the S&P 500. And they're in within the top three of, of 99%. And so when they vote, it matters. Same with BlackRock. On today's episode, I'm joined by Eric Baltunas. Eric is the senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and he's the author of The Institutional ETF Toolbox and The Bogle Effect. In this episode, I chat with Eric all about ETFs, including how the ETF space has evolved over the past year, why passive indexing is sometimes viewed as weak hands or dumb money, I get his thoughts on the passive indexing bubble and how index funds actually affect the underlying company's stock prices. I also get his thoughts on some common criticisms of ETFs, including are they a misallocation of capital and is now the worst time to be a passive index investor. We also talk about single stock ETFs, leveraged ETFs, what these products are, what investors should know about them and why they may not perform as you expect. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I am joined by Eric Beltunas. Eric, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming back on. You were on an episode with Clay a little while back talking about your book, The Bogle Effect, which is all about how John Bogle really pioneered the passive investing in low-cost ETFs. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the topic of ETFs with you and get your thoughts on some of the common criticisms that ETFs get today? Sure. This is something I write about a lot and feel a lot. Uh, where should we begin? I kind of want to start out just an overall view of where the ETF industry has gone. What is kind of the percentage of ETFs as a percentage of assets under management and just what's been going on with the space? In general, ETFs are like the MP3. Right? They are a technology and a portal to get what you want. They are not an asset class. right? And so people confuse us a lot. So just like an MP3 allows you to get whether you want Bob Dylan or Taylor Swift, it doesn't matter. ETFs lie to get everything. So it's a big tent. They're just like the MP3. It's just a more efficient and lower cost way to consume the end product. And so that's really what they are. A, a wise man once said they're like a mutual fund, but with benefits. And those benefits are they trade intraday on exchange, so you can lock into the price you want during the day as opposed to waiting to the end. Some people like that. They're also generally very cheap, lower cost. A mutual fund tends to have share classes, right? So if you're like, you don't have a lot of money and you can only afford the A share class, which the minimum is $1,000 versus the I share class where the minimum is like a million dollars, the I share class will have a fee of say 50 basis points, but the A will be 100 basis points or 1%. ETFs are the institutional clash for everybody. They just destroy that whole share class system and they give you a price that's equivalent to what the big guys used to be able to get. And everybody loves that, right? And so they are used by a variety of investors for different purposes. They're also more tax efficient. They don't really kick out capital gains distributions hardly ever. People like that too. So look, they just took a couple evolutionary steps beyond the mutual fund. And in being a good technology, people have tried to stuff every, everything into it. 
a lot of the money is in basic vanilla, you know, S&P 500 index ETF or the total market or the total international. If you take that, we'll call that boring bulk vanilla beta. That's going to be the majority of the assets. Then there's a wing of the ETFs that tracks things like commodities, even like gold. They store gold in a vault. So that makes it easy to get exposure to gold. Then it moves to like their ETFs to track oil futures. Then there's ones that are leverage. Then there's ones that are like active, like ARC. So instead of tracking an index, a manager picks the stocks. But the active part of ETFs is pretty small. Like the stock picker lane of ETFs is probably 2% of the assets. That said, there's a big lane that's 20% called smart beta. And all that does is it takes regular beta, which tracks like an, an index or a market, and it tweaks it. So let's just say you like the S&P 500, but you don't want energy stocks, right? So that'd be like the fossil fuel free S&P 500. We would call that smart beta or ESG. Or another one could say, I like the S&P 500, but actually want to like rebalance quarterly and rebalance into stocks that are cheaper and have a lower PE or give out more dividends. So there's dividend ETFs, value ETFs, growth ETFs. I do consider those active, but they're, they follow an index, but they do deviate from the benchmark. That is called smart beta. That's 20%. I would say active is a big part of ETFs if you conclude that. But if you just look at stock picking managers, it's more like 2%. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that active versus passive aspect, because I think some investors might think that all ETFs are just these passive instruments, and they're not. There is this whole section that you just mentioned that are very active now, and that's an approach that I've started to implement more in my portfolio. I love factor investing, and ETFs provide a great way to get factor exposure without having to do it yourself in a systematic way of buying hundreds of securities. Factor is a term people are like, wait, what's going on here? You know, factors are like things that exist in the market that tend to work over time because humans act weird. So like value is like buying cheap stocks. That tends to work because everybody gets crazy and goes to the shiny objects. And that leaves stocks, some stocks undervalued. So a value investor would just hold those and wait for the herd to come back when, the, when everybody's like over the shiny stuff and back to like basics, which is exactly what's happening now. That's why value is having a good run. And then momentum, they just basically try to do whatever the crowd is doing. They just try to latch on to whatever is going on, like a chameleon. And so now momentum is actually in value stocks and energy stocks. These factors are proven to work. You do have to hang in them a long time to really reap the benefit of the premium. But to your point, you can get that exposure now for under 20 basis points. And that used to be something you could only get in a high, high cost hedge fund that you even had to be a credit investor to get. So ETFs have done a wonderful job democratizing all this stuff. And to your point that I used to call smart beta or factor ETFs sort of like active AI, because they take something that used to be done by an active manager that charged 1%, and they've turned and they've, it's almost like they've taken Peter Lynch's brain and put it into R2-D2. That's the best metaphor I can come up with. And what I mean by that is they take the system that a manager has whether it's tracking value stocks. And they all have different systems. Some like used to use price to books, some like price to earnings. Uh, there's a variety of price to sales. So they take their system and they convert it into a rules-based index. So the index does exactly what the human would do, but it does it robotically. And what's good about that is, A, it, you can charge less money because you don't need a whole staff of people. So it's usually like a third of the cost. And it's also a disciplined. Like sometimes, like right now, it's probably tough to buy tech stocks. But if tech stocks look relatively cheap to the system, it's going to go buy them and you could get rewarded for that. 
humans have a tough time making very disciplined, tough decisions. And so smart bait ETFs remove the emotion from those tough decisions. That's a benefit. And then the third one is they, they don't distribute capital gains, even if they are high turnover strategies. That's why smart beta, in my opinion, is, has a bright future. It's $1.2 trillion inside the ETF world. And I would consider that new active or a, a strong new form of active. But it's, like I said, it's got major benefits over the old ways. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how it's growing in this space and that retail investors can get exposure to these strategies that once just weren't available even as of recently. And so I'm just wondering for our listeners who want to look into some of these funds, there are some that are better than others. So what should they be looking for in these strategies? Let's go with an active one. What are the things that they should be comparing between different ETFs? We have a multitude of tools that we've designed to help the consumer. And the way we build these tools is very simple. I think one of the most important things you can look at is, so if it's an active ETF, I think you just look at the holdings, first of all. Like, Do you recognize the names? If it's Apple, Microsoft, JP Morgan, Berkshire, and it like, looks like the S&P, well, you know, do you really need active in that case? You know, might as well buy the index. You look at somebody like Kathy Wood, you're going to see stocks that are not anywhere near the S&P. I think she has 1% overlap with the S&P. That might be interesting just right there. Okay, I don't recognize these stocks. Maybe that is a good place to be active because it's not as covered as those big names. And the other thing I would do is just look at the um, number of holdings. So the S&P 500 holds 500 stocks. If your fund holds less than 50, like ARK, you can expect a bumpy ride, but you can expect some real nice surges on the upside. But it's going to move. It's Honestly, number of holdings is probably one of the most underrated things to look at because it's almost like going to determine. It's like a ski. When you go skiing, it has like a green dot, a blue square, or a black diamond. If it's under 40 holdings, it's expect the black diamonds, right? And if it's got like 100 to 200, maybe it's blue, three, four, 500, it's going to move like the S&Ps. That is a crucial number to know. That way you're not surprised, right? That's what the whole point of those. So we have systems that help the consumer quickly understand the aggressiveness of the active or smart beta strategy or thematic ETF. What I'm describing would work for any of the above. So I would look at that. Whether you want to pick a manager you know, there aren't that many famous managers anymore. It wasn't like the old days where there's like many managers were well-known and then one moved to this fund, so you go follow the manager. Yeah, besides Kathy Wood, just, there's not really uh, that many well-known. I, I will say that on the equity side, her funds dominate. But like, for example, the blockchain ETF, BLOK, that's actively managed. I don't even know if people know that. But who the manager is, it doesn't even matter. And on the flip side, like on the fixed income, a lot of people like active there, uh, especially in the short duration. So PIMCO is used a lot and JP Morgan. And would you know the managers? Probably not. So again, I, I would look at those things. And again, I would track, uh, compare their track record, you know, throw their returns in against maybe if it's equities, throw it against the S&P. That's not always the perfect benchmark, but it gives you a reference point. And on the bond side, maybe throw it up against the, um, if you can get it, the Bloomberg Universal Bond Index. Uh, I think it's better than the aggregate bond index, but you just those are some things I would do. And then you want to look at the fee. If it's tri- if it's Kathy Wood and it's really volatile and it's like hot sauce, the fee is probably less of a concern because you'll use it in a smaller dose, and the returns could be so outsized that it will overwhelm the fee. But if it's ha- holding a bunch of S and P ish type stocks, I think you you demand a lower fee. In other words, if the fund is largely beta, they should price it accordingly because beta is free at this point. That's what we're seeing in this industry. And this is an important point. The portfolios of people have changed. 
Right now, most people, it used to be you just switched managers, five-star manager, then sold this one, this guy's hot. Then That was like the 80s and 90s. Vanguard came around, index funds, and they made everything so cheap. The core of the portfolio is now cheap index funds for most people. We'll call that beta. But they, it's boring. People mess around with like 15%. And what they want there is volatile. They actually want something wild and crazy. That's why Kathy Wood fits so perfect into today's market, even though she's down so much, not really seeing a run on the funds. Because people are like, I own all the serious, stocks, serious investor stocks with my cheap ETF that tracks the S&P 500 of the total market. I don't need active for that. What I want Active to do is go out and find some really interesting stuff. So Kathy has spoken to that need perfectly. And then thematic ETFs, I think, speak to that need. You know, people like to invest in stuff like a cannabis ETF or blockchain. Like I said, I think crypto has spoken to that need. People like crypto because it can complement that otherwise boring core. I have found that over the years, what's happening now is um, Active is getting more active. So it doesn't compete against Vanguard because it knows that beta is free and it, it's tough now. So if you're an active manager and you charge 80 basis points and, you're at, and your full portfolio looks like the S&P, you are seeing outflows because people just like, I can just, let me just buy all of those stocks basically for, for like, I don't know, honestly, 15 times cheaper. That's a pretty strong value proposition. That's why the core of the portfolio is shifting from the closet indexing active to just a regular index. So active is being pushed to get more innovative and even wild and crazy. So look for new ETFs to get even more crazy. You know, get single stock ETFs coming out, which is literally an oxymoron. I mean, (laughs) jumbo shrimp, single stock ETF doesn't make any sense. But here, this is where we're at. So I tell people the tent's going to get wider and crazier, especially on the exotic side, because all these people with ideas on Wall Street, they're not going to try to compete against Vanguard. They're going to lose that battle. But they they can compete in the hot sauce lane. And they'll get, and you can charge more there, so there people are less fee sensitive. But those are the things I would look for. And again, what I just described is really a bigger takeaway. How is this fitting in the portfolio? If it is a complement to your cheap Vanguard index fund, well, then I think you probably should go crazy. I think you want volatile. I, why? What's the point of doubling up on Apple, Microsoft, JP Morgan? You already own those in in SPY or IVV or whatever. That would be my general advice on it. And when you go to trade it, just look at the spread. The difference between the bid and the ask, see how much volume, you know, you probably want to stick to stuff that trades every day. Although it's, it's even, you can even put a limit order in if you want, but the trading side, there's a couple little snags, but mostly I think you can put in a, a market order for most of the sort of more popular ETFs. You mentioned a lot of great things there, and I kind of follow that same approach with my portfolio about 80% is that boring basic index funds, but then the rest of the 20 or 10% even I just want to have fun with and I'm okay with the volatility. And those are where, where those smart beta strategies or those really active funds are really interesting to get involved in. And that to me is almost more fun than picking stocks because one, it's still diversified and it has the volatility, but also the return prospects. That's something that we talk about on our show. And I just think it's a good way that investors can get exposure to a more active strategy without picking single stocks. Yeah. And this is why we are bullish on hot sauce, even though it seems counterintuitive to think that hot sauce is actually a byproduct of Vanguard. Bogle would have hated that. He he didn't like these high-flying stuff. He would have said, you don't need it. Just do boring all the way. But I think most people are not as rigid as him and like to have a little fun. They also don't want to have FOMO. These, this hot sauce generally is like a call option on the future. 
just in case Kathy Wood is right and there's robo taxis all over and robots running around, I don't want to miss out on that. So let me let me stick with her. Also, because you have the boring stuff covered, her volatility on the downside or her, you know, a large drawdown isn't going to bother you as much because it's a lower par- portion of the portfolio. And that's a beautiful thing because in order to do a high volatile or factor strategy, as I said, you have to hang in there. Does it make sense to buy it when it's up and then sell it when it's down, which is the problem investors have had for ages. That's part of why I wrote the, that book on Bogle is I think Vanguard and Bogle actually solved way more than just introducing low-cost funds. They've actually helped solve behavior for highly active strategies because you, having such a cheap core gives you so much freedom and sort of currency to spend a little more, to hang in there a little more. And it, it's a nice byproduct. And if that itch of the hot sauce, if that, if that keeps you from touching the 80% that's the boring beta, it's worth everything, even if that part of your portfolio is flat or down over time. It, as long as it kept you from... Because the, the 80% has to grow like a tree because compounding is so underrated. Compounding is where it's at. And you can only compound if you just don't touch it. And compounding happens over 10, 20, 30 years. I get that. Watching a tree grow is the best metaphor I can come with. You can't mess with the tree. You have to just let it grow. So if you're going to distract yourself, and that's the service that these hot saucy funds or uh, investments give you, I think there's a value in that, even if some of the more serious analysts would say all that stuff's pointless. But I don't know. It, it's, there's definitely a debate around it right now, but I'm, I get it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I kind of want to get into the debate of uh, the criticisms of passive investing with you in a bit, but I want to touch on the single stock ETFs because you mentioned that there. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because our listeners might not know what this is. And this is a relatively new product. So I'm wondering if you can explain what these single stock ETFs are and what are your thoughts on them? A single stock ETF is just convenience. I mean, if you're the kind of person, most professional investors can short Tesla. They can find a borrow on the market from a broker and then just sell it. And now they're short Tesla and they go buy it back when they have to give it back, right? A lot of people either can't do that, don't know how to do it, don't care to do it, but they do maybe have times where they want to hedge out Tesla or Elon. Maybe Elon tweets something crazy or the SEC's cracking down. You could buy an inverse Tesla for a month just to make yourself sleep at night because the Tesla part of your whole portfolio might be threatened. You could also just anticipate negative earnings and you want to buy it before the earnings. Those would be some of the use cases for it. But all it does, single stock ETFs and leverage ETFs, what they use is swaps. And what swaps are, my friend Dave Nadig said it best, it's just a bar bet with a big institution. So like, remember the big short where Christian Bale goes to Goldman and says, hey, can you design a contract where if the mortgage market blows up, I win? And I'll pay you a little premium every month to keep this bet going. That's a swap. So all the Tesla inverse people do is they go to a couple different banks and they say, okay, we're going to have a daily bet. If Tesla goes up, you win. If Tesla goes down, I win. And then they just change the money based on that. Again, ETFs have democratized what used to be institutional type stuff, including swaps. And so that's really what's going on here. And so now you can just click a button and have what essentially was an institutional trade put on. Now, that's, that's like a Pandora's box. It can be very useful, but you can trade yourself into the poorhouse, basically, if you don't be careful. So again, if I was advising anybody, if you do mess with single stock ETFs, I would limit it to the hot sauce part of your portfolio. But they're, they do serve a purpose. But we found that the ones that have come out, most of them have just been ignored. Uh, the ones that have seemed to got action are Tesla. And I think that speaks to people want to trade volatile and controversial stocks tied to big personalities. So there's a one uh, in the pipeline for GameStop and AMC and Coinbase, perhaps those might be hits. But the ones for like Microsoft and like Pfizer, like, I don't know, nobody really cares. Yeah, it does seem like the, like you mentioned, the big volatile names would be the more popular ones. I am wondering if you can speak a little bit about the risks and the time horizon of these, because I think some investors might be surprised by, it's not a one for one. If the, if Tesla goes down 20% and you were right, your return isn't 40% on a two times leveraged inverse ETF. Can you speak a little bit about that? What you're speaking to is uh, what we call volatility drag. In the Christian Bale example, he went and had a personalized contract. So that is a contract that could just last a couple months, right? Because there's people coming in and out of the fund every day, and it's a liquid instrument, they have to do the bet daily. So that way, when you come in, at least the bet starts that day. 
They can't, they, otherwise you'd have to have any, they, they tried these leverage ETFs back in the day that were like monthly so that you could come in at the for beginning of the month and it would be a monthly leverage bet. Nobody really cared. So yes, you only get the inverse perfect or near perfect once a day. As time goes on, because it gets reset every day, some of that resetting, if it's volatile, starts resetting and it gets, again, there's a drag in that. And you can go over the math on that. A lot of leverage ETFs have another site, but just imagine resetting leverage on something that's going up and then down, up and then down. For example, looks like Tesla's down 11% since the inverse Tesla came out, but the inverse Tesla's only up 4%. So you would, you think you'd be up 11%, but you're not. So I would use these on a short-term basis. Same thing with leverage ETFs and inverse ETFs. The more leverage, the more the volatility drag. That said, I got to be honest, if something moves up or down in a, in a path that's pretty consistent, the daily leverage gets reset and it starts to compound. So there's been cases like when tech had that nice run for like three or four years, about five years ago, the 3X tech ETF returned five times the tech index. So you actually can get, we call that the compounding effect. But I would say that's like a full moon. It's rare. Love it when you get it. So I can't say it's all volatility drag all the time, but volatility is the enemy of long holding periods of these funds. So if you if you have a bet that Tesla is going to go down and it's going to go down in a completely straight line over the next like three years, honestly, inverse might make sense. But if you acknowledge that it, it could go down, but it'll be volatile on the way down, I, I would never hold that then. So that's why I would, generally speaking, just don't hold these a long time. But I just wanted to point that out. If it's a straight line up or down, it, it can actually compound. So then you kind of mentioned don't hold it long term, but is there like an optimal holding period? Say if like Tesla's earnings are coming out in whatever, a month later, is there kind of that sweet spot where a month, a couple months would be optimal? Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at one month, right? So Tesla is down 23%. TSLQ is up 25%. So you got a touch of compounding effect because it's obviously up more than Tesla's down. So yeah, I would say a month, probably I wouldn't hold it more than that. And I would monitor it. This is not like Vanguard. You have to monitor this, but even weekly, you know, but if you're going to bet on Tesla earnings, I guess, you know, it's all about timing. You want to get in before other bets are placed that push the price down before the earnings, so to speak. Right. So you have to balance all that, but maybe give a couple days on either side. But again, I wouldn't go more than a couple weeks or a month. And I just want to say, I'm not recommending this. I'm just trying to learn and get your thoughts on these. They're interesting products. And so I am wondering what would be the benefit of using this compared to just an option strategy? Is it the fact that some people just can't maybe get margin accounts? Yeah, exactly right. It's also just, and I, in my first book called the Institutional ETF Toolbox, where I, I go over a lot of this stuff, I have a section called Advantages. And I go through low cost and yada, yada, tax efficiency, some of this stuff, whatever. The last advantage I have in there is convenience. And I say, this is probably the biggest advantage. And this is convenience works in any business. If you make something convenient, look at Amazon. If you make something convenient, people will use it. And so it's really just somebody doing the legwork for you to put a trade on. And so I sometimes call these package trades. There's some ETFs that go long this and short that. Or they will go and uh, like currency hedge ETFs or long short ETFs or ETFs that have an options overlay that or they even sell options. So you get a little premium, which gives you like yield. These are package trades, which you could do on your own. I mean, there's no doubt. 
you could actually use any ETF on your own. I mean, the, the S&P 500 ETF, literally, they all show you their holdings every day. You could copy them, but it's a pain in the butt. Most people just like to click a button and have it put on. People will respond to convenience. And so I would say that's the overriding reason that people may use it and would do it over doing the legwork themselves. Now, I kind of want to get into some of the criticisms behind passive investing. Retail investors are sometimes viewed as weak hands or dumb money in the case of passive investing. And you've written an article on this. I'm just wondering why you think passive investing is sometimes viewed in this negative light. It's a lot of sour grapes. I used to say, if you, there's articles called Some Worry. Some Worry ETFs haven't been tested. Some worry passive is, is going to blow up the market. If you pull the thring on the sum, it's an active manager typically, or an academic who's looking to get their name out there. And the paper might have been funded by a, an active company. So there's a lot of sour grapes. You definitely get clicks and reads. If you, know, if you say, like I remember one active manager called ETFs, weapons of mass destruction. And so the, the Bloomberg reporter put that in the headline. And it was like one of the top five most read things on the terminal that day. I countered with the piece and barely anybody read it. You just get a lot of clicks from that. So expect, and this is the same concept as bears in the market. Bears and people who are calling out Armageddon are going to get way more press than people who are like, everything's fine, I'm not selling. It's just the way it is. People like to read bad news and stuff like that. So that's a big part of it. I think most of the concerns you can not worry about. Just take my word for it. I don't think ETFs are ruining fundamentals. That's one of the big things, or passive, because when a stock has bad earnings, the stock goes down. I mean, we've seen stocks get crushed and surge up based on news. I like to use the sniff test. As long as that keeps happening, it passes my sniff test. You know, is it possible that the bid coming in from passive puts a floor on something that's going down? Like, for example, if uh, Tesla's earnings, a Tesla's going down, but it's a big component of passive funds seeing inflows, does that mean it would have gone down a little more if passive didn't exist? Maybe. But you have to understand, over the last 10 years, all that's happened is it's been about a net zero effect of active mutual funds to passive ETFs and mutual funds. They own the same stocks. It's just been a transfer of vehicle. So people, are going, they still own Apple, Microsoft, JP Morgan, they just own it cheaper. And the outflows from active mutual funds have pretty much matched the inflows into passive. So it's kind of been a net zero effect on the market. Some people would say, yeah, but the passive buys indiscriminately, doesn't consider fundamentals. Okay, a little bit. Um, so yeah, I would agree. There's, there's definitely maybe a passive uh, force that creates a little more momentum towards bigger stocks. But we've seen this year, bigger stocks can fall too. As long as there's volatility, stocks move in different directions, they move off of news, I'm fine with it. If you know, We study stocks that have high, high passive ownership, way beyond the apples of the world. And we, even those seem to move independently of the flows. And then also what people don't realize is if you take the whole stock market, which I think now is like $45 trillion, Passive owns a, uh, I don't know, 18% of that. So it's, it's still a minority owner. It's growing. It's one of the fastest growing owners, but it is. And then your final point about weak hands, this one's easy to defeat because look at any year the market's gone down, 2008, 2018, 2020, although it went back up. And this year, each and every year, Passive takes in money, ETFs take in money. Active loses money. I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's also funny because the people who complain about passive, I think, are the same ones who will complain that retail's dumb money. Well, okay, retail's finally wised up and they don't sell. They just keep buying. And now they're complaining about that. 
I don't know. I, I see through all this. The only legit complaint and concern about passive that I give a lot of credence to is this one, which is that Vanguard and BlackRock are dominate the passive market so much that the more money moves to them, the more they're going to own of individual stocks. So for example, any stock, take any stock, Apple, Microsoft, Vanguard owns about 8.5% of that stock and BlackRock's right behind them at like 7.3. Then there's a big drop. Those two companies take in the majority of the flows in America. Over the next couple of years, they're probably going to own over 10%. That is a lot of power on the voting side. That's a legit concern. It's a concentration of power. Americans do not like that. I think what's going to happen, they're going to have to pass off the voting to the individual investors somehow or poll them, decentralize it, or they're going to get regulated probably. That would be the one, but it doesn't matter. Even if Vanguard gets regulated, and this is why I call the book The Bogle Effect, not just the story of Vanguard, because the effect, it's, the ship has sailed. You can get cheap beta now at Fidelity, Goldman, JP Morgan, Schwab. It doesn't matter. Even if Vanguard stopped, the Bogle Effect is out there and it's going to continue to ripple out. It's almost not even meaningful, but the voting power certainly is becoming a political football uh, inside the uh, bubble. I don't think real, real investors don't care too much. But if you, they can understand it, should one company have that much voting power? Most people probably say, no, it's, that's probably a little dangerous. I never thought about that before. When you hold an ETF, all of those votes then go to Vanguard or BlackRock and they have the say for all of your shares then essentially? Yeah. So what's happening here is Vanguard and BlackRock have a corporate governance group. I don't know how many people are in it. Maybe let's list the 25. And they look at all the proxy votes that happen over the course of a year and they vote. And they vote 7, 8% of, of the shares are theirs. They have the number, Vanguard has the number one vote in 70% of the companies in the S&P 500. And they're in, within the top three of, of 99%. So they're a BFD, right? And so when they vote, it matters. Same with BlackRock. But I will say, if you look, they have these reports, you can look them up called the Vanguard Stewardship Report. They'll show you how they voted. They'll even articulate what, how, how they're thinking. But the problem is, and this is where Larry Fink at BlackRock got into trouble. He came out a couple of years ago and said, climate change is a real issue. ESG is a real issue. I'm going to use all my power to push this. And the right freaked out. They're like, what? And then he scaled back now because other Southern pension plans have threatened to pull money away from BlackRock because they're now seemingly like a left-wing agenda going on in their voting. So then he scales back. He says, oh, I never said I hated oil companies. And now the left is kicking his butt. BlackRock has it worse because they, they spoke out. And now the both sides are just kick them in the face all day long. Vanguard, a little less so because they're quiet. But still, I remember the FT wrote one article about how Vanguard is the biggest polluting asset manager. And it had the ship logo and there's the smokestacks. It was like smoke coming out. Like the ship, the Vanguard ship was like a carbon emitting, like awful thing ruining the world. And I'm like, well, here's the problem. These are index funds. They have to own oil companies. So there's a lot of misinformation out there and people have agendas. And no matter what your agenda is, you can use it to kick BlackRock and Vanguard in the face with it. And it'll never be good enough for you. And there'll always be a problem. I personally, in my book and in my notes, I advise them to just democratize it. Like give people a chance to vote their own shares or answer a poll. And the poll will give a feel for where their minds are on important issues. That would go a long way to just silencing all the problems here. That's so interesting. Another thing that I really want to get your thoughts on is the passive indexing bubble. So this is something that I've frequently heard over the years is indexing has become more popular. 
and index funds are growing in terms of assets under management. One of the foundations of the so-called index fund bubble is the idea that index funds affect price discovery. So they affect the market's ability to efficiently incorporate information into prices. I just wanted to dig into this argument with you today and get your thoughts on the idea that they might be affecting this price discovery. Like I said, an example I used in the book and one we studied was GE in 2019, I think it was. It came out with the earnings that just was awful. They were in debt and had no revenue, something like that. Like clearly like bad fundamentals. Stock goes down like 38% over the next year. Now we also show, we show that chart with the line going down with a bar chart of all the flows going into passive funds that own GE. So that it's almost like the line is going down despite the passive funds. So the tail cannot wag the dog. The dog is wagging the tail or whatever. But again, I will say to you, would GE have gone down 40% if it weren't for those flows? Probably. But maybe that's a good thing. I mean, I always try to tell people, like, do you really want stocks to go down like 80%? I would say you should appreciate the passive buyers because they're in here with a bid. At least somebody has a bid this year because active mutual funds have seen 750 billion of outflows. Passive is about 400 billion of inflows. So there's still a net outflow from like fund holders, but at least passive is coming in there and, and propping up the market a little bit. It could be worse. Plus, that's their right. I mean, I, I have no problem with it. And again, what probably will be a side effect of this is that, you know how GameStop was able to be hijacked? I think as passive grows and, more, and owns more shares of companies, it's possible stocks could be more volatile because there's less actual active people using them. And that could be a, a byproduct that is real. So it's not like there would be price discovery. There just be, might be price volatility because the shares that are owned by passive never move. So that leaves less shares, which means it can be more volatile because there's just less people in the market trading it, right? So that's probably something we'll see is a little more price volatility on those stocks. But I would say that could actually be perfect because people are looking for volatile things to add to their passive. So what I think is you'll see managers give you their 20 best stocks, or they'll try to navigate this increasing volatility and some will win, some will lose, and that's how active will, will thrive. But I, again, even if passive were to be 100% of all funds and ETFs, right, that they would still only own 40% of the stock market. Like households, individual people, households own 40% of the stock market. Institutions own like, I don't know, 7, 8, 10% or something like that. Foreign investors own another 10. Businesses own like 10. So the stock market has way more owners than just funds. Funds only own 40%. So even if it went 100%, it's still only 40%. So they definitely have an impact. I wouldn't, I, I don't try to un undermine this. I'm of the opinion that a lot of people over the last 15 years, what they said about passive, they really meant about the Fed. The Fed has a power over the market that's probably really unnatural. And the Fed took away any sense of fear for the past 15 years because you just knew the Fed would bail you out. You didn't really sell or get nervous. And so I think the Fed killed a little bit of price discovery and volatility and bad news became good news, and good news became bad news. Now we're in the reverse, where they're trying to raise rates, and now bad news is good news, and vice versa, once again, just on the, on the flip side. So I, I think sometimes what people, what annoys them about the market in what you're talking about is really a Fed thing more than a passive thing. But I'm not going to say passive doesn't have any effect. It certainly does. But I asked people in my book how big passive could get, even if the households all went passive. And people are like, you know, 80% of the market could be passive and you still have people trading in and creating price discovery. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. That's really interesting to hear you talk about that. I recently read a paper on this. I was just trying to understand it better and something clicked with me in the book and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. It said that sometimes people confuse assets under management with trading. And so trading sets prices, assets under management don't. And so some people think that as passive ETFs are growing in the space, that is affecting prices. But Vanguard did a paper on this. It was a 2018 paper titled Setting the Record Straight, The Truths About Indexing. And they demonstrated that the vast majority of equity ETF trading, 94% on average, is done in the secondary market, meaning ETF unit holders are buying and selling from each other without touching the underlying securities. And so to me, that would suggest that it's only when you're touching the underlying securities through the authorized participant, which would actually affect 
the price discovery. Is that a correct way to think about that? Yes. But remember, ETFs have 6 trillion. Passive index mutual funds have like another 5 trillion. So passive is ETFs, but also index mutual funds. But let's take the 6 trillion in ETFs. You're right. Of those 6 trillion in ETFs trade $35 trillion a year. Of that 35 trillion, I'd probably say only 5 to 7% of it is creation redemption activity where they are messing with the underlying. But the price of the ETF, but here's the thing though. Let's say if you're a market maker and people are all demanding ARC, right? And ARC starts to, the price of ARC starts to go above what the value of the stocks are. We'll call that a premium. The market maker is going to arbitrage that and they're going to need to go buy the stocks and then sell ARC and that will close that. If demand for ETFs will ultimately at some point push demand for the stocks in the correct way, because if you demand ARC, you're kind of demanding her stocks, right? But if there's enough natural sellers and buyers, that's fine. You guys do your thing and that's, that's, that's good. I want to tell a quick anecdote here that I think will be of value to your listeners because I've taught all these classes on ETFs and this story helps people lock into the concept of an ETF really well. The guy who invented the ETF, Nate Most, worked at the American Stock Exchange in 1980s. His job before that was at the Pacific Commodities Exchange. And there he saw something called the commodities warehouses. In a commodity warehouse, if you have a bunch of soybean oil, you put it in a locker, right? And the warehouse gives you a receipt for the oil. You can go trade the receipts. That way you're not moving soybean around. It's a pain in the butt, right? And let's say you get a bunch of receipts. You then can go redeem all that soybean, which is secured in the locker. And that is exactly the model he used, except instead of soybean oil, it's the S&P 500 stocks, or it's a bunch of bonds, or it's the ARC stocks. And instead of a warehouse, it's called a custodian. That's why the name of the first ETF is Spider S&P 500 Depository Receipts. So an ETF is just a receipt, but it does link to the actual holdings. And as a market maker, if you see such a demand for receipts, you're going to have to go to the locker and buy those and, and to redeem some stocks so you can sell it in the open market and pocket the difference. And that concept also of the receipt being traded in for the actual underlying, there's no money exchanging hands. And that's why ETFs are tax efficient. That commodity warehouse receipt model being applied to other asset classes was genius. And it created all kinds of wonderful side effects. But the reason it's cool is because who cares if people want to trade the receipt back and forth? That's probably pretty good. And so in times of crisis, especially on the bond side, I I would argue ETFs have created liquidity where there might not be a lot. Because HYG and JNK and TLT, they trade a ton when the market is, is volatile. But that takes some stress off the bonds. But certainly, ETFs don't avoid a downturn, but they will reflect it. But in every downturn, they trade a lot. And I think that's good. If ETFs stop trading in volatile times, that would worry me. I feel like a lot of people don't understand how ETFs work, how the creation of them and the trading of hands. So that was super helpful, that analogy there. There is a couple other criticisms that I want to go over that we've heard about ETFs from some famous people. Kathy Wood wrote on Twitter, passive funds prevent many investors from enjoying the 400-fold appreciation in Tesla. She called it a misallocation of capital. There's been that, I guess, term thrown around about passive indexing. I'm just wondering if you think that there's any merit to calling it a misallocation of capital. I'm friendly with Kathy. I think she gets beat up a lot, I think, in, on social media. And I don't think that's right. I think she's been very clear what she does. and. Uh, I can't say we support her, but we understand her. And I, as I said before, 
she just fit this, fits the times and she fits the modern portfolio. But I've told her, you should actually join up with passive and you should, and you should just be like, of course, passive is good. That's a great way to save for retirement, but passive may be late to some of the things that I see. And so why would you should use me to compliment passive? But Kathy, to her credit, is all in. She literally thinks that. And that's why she's special. And that's why she's been so adamant about investing in these stocks, even as they get really like beat up and they're you know, down 60, 70%. So her all-in belief is just coming out there. That said, tactically, I think it would be better for her to, to say passive. We are a great compliment to passive because I sometimes, would you really want to put your kid's college education in ARC? No. I mean, no normal person would say that. I think she should acknowledge that and, and look at herself as a beautiful compliment to a boring Vanguard fund. But so I disagree with her. And this year especially shows that some of the boring mall stocks and energy stocks that were supposed to die are leading. And you would not have owned those if you only had ARC. So passive just covers all your bases. And it makes you not to think about this or worry about it too much. So that would be my, my response to that. But if you're a high growth manager and you're literally trying to live seven, eight years in the future, I could see why you would think that. I just don't agree with it. That makes sense. It's definitely a compliment and you can tell her passion when she says those things, but it is a criticism that I've heard. And then I guess on that similar point, I've heard a lot of criticisms with the market weighted cap. I mean, there's also criticisms with price weighted indexes, but on market cap weighted, I've heard some people say how this year is the year for active investing because we saw even over the past year how tech stocks that dominated the space for much of the past 10 years down significantly. And now it's the energy stocks that make up the smallest portion of the S&P 500 are doing the best, but you don't really reap many benefits from holding them in a market cap weighted index. Yeah, but at least you get them. I mean, they are there. What is energy? 3% 3% maybe you said? Yeah, it's like very small. I don't even know. Yeah, and tech is 25%. Well, again, what is passive investing in general? You're just riding the coattails of active, which is why you have to acknowledge that too. You're like a freeloader. Active determined tech stocks to be a value for 12 years. They bid the stocks up. That meant the market cap got higher. And so passive weighted it higher. Now, active, because the Fed completely did a 180, has deemed energy stocks and value to be of importance. Passive indexes will slowly follow suit there. I think you should look at passive as taking active's best ideas and all of their brain power and trading, except without their fees. Sure. But what you're describing is hindsight 2020, where, oh, okay, so you were supposed to go into energy exactly a year ago. Who knew that? And at the time, it was a scary thing to do because a lot of people were saying energy stocks were dead forever because clean energy was going to take over and oil was gone. So to go into that trade, you would have to defy a major narrative. And I mean, who knew? And so now it seems obvious. Now the question is, do you go into energy now? So like at any given time, it's hard to know. You can't know what's going to happen in the future. And this resignation that you don't know, I think is part of why passive is so popular. I think people through personal experience and through seeing professionals with like PhDs and a lot of experience actually fail and underperform that they're just like, screw it. <laughs> I'm just clocking out. I don't need to do this anymore. And we're Uh, The cheap index fund, I think, gives them the perfect tool to just check out. And so I would agree with you. They're right. S&P was light on energy. That's only because active investors love tech stocks for 15 years. And so they got a higher weighting. That's so true. And I think it's to our your point earlier where you have your boring portfolio where you don't touch. That is maybe the majority of your portfolio. 
But then you can have a smaller portion where you're making more active bets and everything is obvious in hindsight. But I mean, you have that little portion that you could overweight some energy right now or go more tactical with things. But the total stock market will always be that. I like how you said it's kind of freeloading because it is. You're not paying barely anything to reap the benefits of market returns. I think people just forget that active is driving the car, right? So if active likes energy stocks, uh, energy is going to go up and that's going to make the market cap of energy stocks go up relative to tech. And so tech will start to decrease the weight in the S&P and energy will go up. So if we continue to have an energy rally and oil just becomes remains hot and the price of oil goes up and m- maintains a high price for a long time, energy could be 10% of the portfolio. It's passive is really just going to follow the lead of, of active and be a chameleon of sorts. And then I think I just want to end things today by hearing you speak on any major trends you're seeing in the ETF space that you think would be interesting for our listeners to know about. I guess I would say one of the things that is interesting this year is just how resilient ETF flows have been and launches, despite the markets having pretty much their worst run ever, right? In the first half, especially. We are watching this. We're watching this because if you can take in money in this kind of environment, that's really a good sign. That, that you, this is, easy to take money in a bull market, right? If you take it in the bear market, that's when the next leaders are made, right? And so it good, looks good for ETFs, looks good for Vanguard. The other thing that we are always watching is ESG. I know we can touch on this, but we're sort of bearish ESG ETFs that look to take over your core. We just think that trying to dislodge the S&P 500 with something that's like, I don't know, more expensive and makes little active bets based on like ESG metrics is ultimately too tough. A, you can't do it. It's just tough to dislodge a three basis point index fund. On the flip, we are bullish on ESG that like is uh, volatile, like TAN is just solar stocks. So we think maybe ESG has a future as a complement. There's one other company that just invests in companies changing the world for the better. There's like 30 of them. So that way, it's very easy. You can complement your, your Vanguard. You can stay, hang in there a long time. That's another issue we've been watching. So we've been early in being outspoken on our skepticism of ESG. And I think this year with oil up, ESG funds generally are lagging. And it's shown people that ESG, after you distill all the pleasant sounding save the world language, is just another active strategy. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that one because that's been a hot topic for a while. But now that we're in an energy crisis, we went back to our old ways and now energy is the most important thing. I am curious, quickly on that first point you made about the inflows and outflows, do you, can you paint a little color on that? So are they almost as are ETF inflows and outflows doing as well as they were prior to the crisis or better? Yes. Last year, ETF took in $750 billion. That crushed the record. This year, they're at $480 billion, but they're on pace and I'm, they're almost, I can almost say it's definite. They will have their second best year ever this year with probably about 560, 70 billion. Not as much as last year. But remember, last year was big year in the market. What was the market up? Like 20%. So it'd be the second best year ever. And the stock market have like one of its top five worst years ever. And the bond market to have its worst year ever is astonishing. So you have to weigh in the markets. And so I I wrote a note saying, I I think this might be ETF's most impressive year. Because again, to pull off 500, 600 billion dollars in inflows when it's like rain, sleet, and snowing outside is incredible. Again, we've said our, one of our big mantras or theses on the team is bull markets are good for ETS, but bear markets are great. And it's in these bear markets where they also increase their market share 
because all there is is flows. There is no more asset appreciation assets. ETFs typically eat up 1% market share on mutual funds a year. Now they're eating up over 2% on an annualized basis. So their, their rate of market share increase has doubled. Same as Vanguard. These bear markets, even though the, the absolute flows might be less for Vanguard, ETFs, and passive, those three things relative have doubled their market share growth percent. Over, if this lasts over the next five years, we're going to see a major fundamental shift in the asset management world. And I think ultimately the result of it will be a lot of consolidation. I think like the airlines, there'll be like three or four big giant carriers that service all your beta core needs. Like 80% of your portfolio will be served by BlackRock, Vanguard, or like a consortium of like 10 companies that merge over the next 10 years. And then there'll be niche providers like Hawaiian Air, right? Or the Disney airline or whatever that just do special things. And that's where the 15, 20% of ETS will live. But that's where you're going to see a lot of that launches. And so that's how I think this is all going to evolve. The bear market will speed up all of this. If the market turns around and becomes a bull market, it will slow it down a little bit because obviously there's less urgency to merge or do something if you're an asset manager and you are seeing assets go up or at least offset the outflows, which has been happening for the past 10 years. So a lot of this active passive shift has been completely hidden because the market's gone up and like covered everything up. So it's almost been like a house that looks the same in the front, but it, the, the termites have eaten out the inside. Bear market, the house is going to fall. So I think we're going to see a lot of big, even legacy brand name asset managers team up, try to go maybe bigger assets. You could lower the fees a little bit and they'll be just massive consolidation. I know that's not of huge interest to maybe a millennial investor, but it's certainly a byproduct that we're watching and that our, our clients care about for sure. Yeah, it's just a shift in the times. And it's really cool to be involved and be interested in this space during this time because it does impact retail investors in the number of products, the quality of products that we eventually will have access to. So thank you so much, Eric, for coming back on today. I learned so much from today's conversation. That was so great. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate the, uh, the second appearance. I feel honored. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.